Well, Barada. That's uh, that's good morning in Welsh. Although it's uh, it's gone, it's gone, <laughs> it's gone past morning. But uh, I wanted to greet you. Blin eh? Hounda. <laughs> good afternoon, uh, church brothers and sisters, and a special uh, good morning to those visiting us uh, for the first time. My name is Byron. I've been a member of Ecclesia since 2015, and I'm one of the London City missionaries working with and out from this church. Summer term here is a chance for a number of us to share a message and give those who mainly serve on the preaching roacher a break. Hence, me being up here. (laughs) It's been a joy, challenge, and rewarding service for me, witnessing on the estate over there, serving in regards food provision, especially engaging with the clients here and talking to them about God on a Tuesday, and especially also doing the Saturday market outreach. The picture, sorry. Uh, That's a team of us. We're a out by the, um, the clock tower, and you're always welcome to visit us, or not visit us, pray with us, and join with us as we outreach amongst the community. As many of you may know, this building is owned by the London City Mission. There's a plaque outside. If you had come 10 years ago, next picture, this would be a completely different picture. That is the old London City Mission building. It was over there. Hmm? Oh, did they? All right, yeah. Can I say? And the next picture also. So that was what. And if you look over the estate, most of the buildings would have been looking like that, all round there. And it's called the Sundermead Estate. And over the last 10 years, it's been transformed. The council call it Renaissance, being born again. But it's born again of buildings and not of hearts. We have a new school, new leisure centre, new playing area. A London City Mission traditionally have had these centres as centres for outreach. So we'd have missionaries here and their idea is to go out and reach to the community. But now, they are, their model now is to partnership with churches, and have a missionary attached. A partnership which many of those who have supported the mission for over 180 years and helped to fund these centres are encouraged by seeing us do outreach from this building, doing summer school, having it, there's a school for teenagers, doing food provision, having family fun day, and a community barbecue. I've had the privilege of being here on two previous, two previous occasions. And the last two have been on evangelism. So no guess what it's going to be this afternoon. And just a, a, a recap. I'm going to say that evangelism is basically making known to others, friends, family the good news about Jesus and him saving us from from our sins and that according to the Bible. Next slide. The first talk I talked about evangelism was having a heart for evangelism within ourselves. And this was the scripture verse. The heart not necessarily mean the physical organ, but the spiritual seat whereby God moves in us to be inspired to do evangelism. The key verse being verse 5, which records, do the work of an evangelist. And this was taken in the context of one who I believe had a heart for evangelism, which is Paul, an apostle, giving the command to one who I believe didn't have a heart for evangelism, Timothy, who was a pastor, why command him to do the work of evangelism if he was already doing it? Do we say to Mikey, come on, do the work of evangelism? No, he has it, and he does it. 
So I was trying to bring over those who had a heart for evangelism, like Paul, who was always doing it. He would help and encourage and charge Timothy so that hopefully we would all have a heart. Those who don't would allow others to have a heart. My second talk, a year later in summer, lest any one of us should think evangelism is only for apostles like Paul or pastor bishops like Timothy, I spoke that all of the church is actively involved in evangelism. Not all are evangelists, I agree, but all should evangelize, i.e. make known the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in some form via testimony, giving an answer to inquiries, inquirers, those who ask you why you go, up, go to the hairdressers, maybe make known that you are a believer, sharing with family and friends. And here in our uh, passage, we see there was a great persecution taking place in the early church. And in this, we saw all spectrums within the church doing evangelism the apostles, the evangelists, and especially church members all doing it, with the key verse being verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And that being the congregation, men and women like you. So hopefully we have a heart for evangelism and all of us are to do evangelism. And today, I want to talk about the importance of evangelism. I want to bring it home. Now, you might be sitting there thinking of, not an evangelism again, not talking about evangelism. Can I talk about another subject? There are other equally important things to talk about or to promote within the church. Perhaps... I would agree. I think living the gospel, serving in the church, being family are just as important. Nevertheless, evangelism is important. We can seek to do all these other things as long as evangelism doesn't get sidelined. And I believe churches tend towards being introspective as rather outward-looking. Hence the emphasis is outward looking to those outside the kingdom, those outside the family of God. William Temple, an archbishop of Canterbury, around about the late 19th century, early 20s, gave this statement. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. I repeat, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Can you take a picture on the thing? You probably can't see this. It's a, a picture. I don't know. You probably wouldn't know it. There was a news report. If I said that that was a cyclist, it was a cave... They're boys. They're from Thailand. Any, any thoughts that this may be? Yeah? Well, basically, this is a story about, uh, well, it's a true story about a group of Thailish, Thai, Thai boys wanting to celebrate one of the eldest 17th birthday party. 17th birthday, sorry, not party. And so... The, the, the head coach takes the boys into this cave. And they go into the cave. Well, it's actually a series of caves. It goes deep in. Uh, next uh, picture. The, you can see from there, it's over like group found in the left corner. That's the entrance. They walk right into the cave. And two twos, there's a storm. All right. <laughs> That's my language. Two twos. <laughs> next. <laughs> Two twos. Sorry. <laughs> well, next minute. Next minute. Next minute. 
<laughs> no, this is quite serious. Sorry, this is going to be serious. <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing a point over here. <laughs> I'm, you're right. Um, thanks. <laughs> Keep real, yeah. The storm comes, and the water comes in, and they are encased in the, the, the cave. Water is behind them. There is no chance of them escaping. It is dark. There is less in of air. It is cold. They are huddled together. And there is a mental deprivation because they don't know whether outside they are going to be rescued. Now these guys, or boys, are in a really difficult predicament. However, however, and this is my point before I go into my thing. Those outside of the kingdom are in a greater predicament than when those boys were in the cave, in the darkness. Many of our families, colleagues, neighbors, families are in a more pressing cave, in spiritual darkness and no way of escaping by themselves. Time is running out. The consequences are severe as an eternal darkness awaits with an eternal misery awaiting them. This is part of uh, Jesus' parable. Take of Matthew 22, 11, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited but few are chosen. And in that passage, the darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth are descriptions of hell. Brothers and sisters, we cannot see those outside as being neutral, as being people who can decide to go into the cave. That's too late. Adam has led us all into that spiritual cave. We talked about original sin, I think. Did we talk about original sin in one of the doctrines? Adam has led us all into the cave. All are under sin. All are in darkness and it is Christ who is the light Christ the skilled diver and management team who is the rescuer it is he who gives life and saves us on the streets um, you saw earlier that we meet many people and there's a Scotsman he keeps on saying I cannot get I cannot get I cannot get you can't get it. <laughs> you don't know what I'm saying. Basically saying, I can't, I can't get the, 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 the Christian message. I, I don't understand it. His uh, sister was a believer. She kept on praying for him. But, you know, he, 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 couldn't, he, he couldn't grasp the Christian faith. And when we're talking to him, the reality is he, he's not willing to, to repent. Because when, when you tell him you need to repent, he says, what for? What have I done? However, one thing he does say, he says all he's looking for in this world is happiness. Happiness, that's what he's searching, happiness. And I say to him plainly, and this is for all outside the kingdom, there is no happiness outside God. There is only an eternal destiny of misery suffering, regret, shame, 
for those who plainly reject the message of God. Now, if there is an urgency and importance and a channeling of resources to save those Thai boys physically, and we sense it and we know it, how much more should there be an imperative to save those spiritually? Let us pray and look at our text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us to grasp the importance of this gospel, of us proclaiming it, of us reaching people who are outside the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you help me to do this in love. Help me to not be judgmental. Help me to have a loving spirit. Help us all, Lord, to engage with this. Help us to have a heart for those outside your kingdom. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The, the main text, if you've got a Bible, if you've got um, apps or whatever, um, is taken from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 23. And I'm going to read from the NIV. It's quite a long uh, verses, but the, the main focus is going to be 19 to 22. Verses 19 to 22. Beginning with... Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother, brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to, to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Justice. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. And these, these last ones are the ones I probably focus with throughout this text. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. 
so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. The word of God. This is part of Paul's first letter to a church in Corinth in Greece. In the previous chapter 8, he warns the church not to put stumbling blocks to other members within the church who have a weak conscience. Basically, they are to live in mind of other believers. Paul further goes on here in our passage that he's responding to those who have been sitting in judgment on him. Verse 3 who presumably are taking offense that he should receive support from them, even though he was the founder of the church. Verse 11, he speaks about sowing spiritual seed among them. He first evangelized amongst them, though Apollos lightly pastored them. And we see this from 1 Corinthians 3.6. Yet Paul informs them Though he has the rights as an apostle to be supported by the churches of God, i.e. in the verse 14 in our text, in the same way, these are the words, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He, however, doesn't want to make use of this right, as evidently it is a bone of contention for the church of Corinth. They are basically tight-fisted and stingy in their giving. Maybe, Paul, you just come in here to, to get a living and you don't really care for us. You do ministry just because, you paid, just because you're paid for it. You don't really care for us or love us. Why should we give you our hard-earned cash to support you? Yet Paul articulates a great case as to why he should or could be supported by them. However, since it is such an offense or issue, Paul, for the sake of the gospel work, foregoes this right, and not wishing to hinder the gospel among the congregation at Corinth, but rather makes himself a little more appealing to the stingy Corinthians by not making himself appear as money-orientated. This principle of not giving offense and accommodating his lifestyle as not to hinder the gospel amongst the church he founded and what he spoke of in, a, in the previous chapter 8 where he's uh, making sure that the church do, do not uh, put any stumbling obstacle amongst the brother. He takes forward in his evangelistic ministry. And it is a foundation for us as we also do evangelism or witness to others. The principle will help us do evangelism by not giving unnecessary offense and thus making the gospel or oneself attractive to share the gospel. This hopefully will be the heart of my talk. In following Paul, by not giving unnecessary offense and making oneself attractive to share the gospel is helpful in evangelism. This is the principle. The key verses I'm going to be looking at, as I said, is 19 to 22. I'm going to read them again. Paul states, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like under, one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am free from God's law. Though I am not free from God's law, 
but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to, the, to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Before I go on to look at this principle, shown by Paul, accommodating his behavior, his lifestyle, his customs, as to not to hinder ministry and be attractive to those he's ministering to, I want to answer two possible objections. Firstly, is Paul playing the hypocrite here? And secondly, is this form of lifestyle only for apostles and missionaries seeking to win people for Christ? First objection, is Paul playing the hypocrite? Paul, I may ask, who are you? A Jew, a Gentile, a Christian, a Judaizer, or even a philosopher? This I have to admit, was my first thought when I initially read this passage some 20, 20 odd, maybe 30 years ago, for the first time. But as I began to look at the life of Paul and know the man who he has become, I could state Paul is a Jewish Christian and an apostle and not a hypocrite. As far as the gospel allows, he is accommodating himself to others so as not to be an offense, a principle he laid down earlier in chapter 8 to the Corinthian church, and he himself showed in it, in his dealings with the Corinthian church, as we earlier read. Paul is far from being a hypocrite. We know he is unlikely to be a hypocrite as he publicly rebuked Peter for doing the very thing in Galatians 2. Reading this. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas being Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, these are Jews, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul is not trying to gain influence and favor in high places. We might be guilty of this in the workplace or in family environments, but Paul isn't. Paul is not like this. We see in our passage he remains a Christian, even though he states he becomes like others. And I get this from the, the, the verse 21. Though I am free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Christ's law. Christ's law that includes love your neighbor as yourself. Certain people love to gloss over this and charge Paul with deceit and being a person of multi-personalities. Muslims are loath to do this, using him as a scapegoat. But Paul shows us in all his accommodating himself to others, he is still under Christ's law. He is still a Christian. And there is relative freedom in how we behave, how our customs, and how we relate to others for the gospel's sake. There is no rule that says you can preach, you can't preach in a baseball cap. There's no rule that says you can't go in a pub. Or there's no rule that says I can't witness in a betting shop. Provided we don't cause unnecessary offense, or as in chapter 8, cause a weak brother to stumble. An example would be if I, as a person, love to witness in pubs and uh, someone here who is a brother who may be an ex-alcoholic uh, takes and wants to do that example and go in and witness the pub and then they, they fall, they slip, they have a drink or too many, then I will forego, forego that for the sake of my brother, for the sake of my weak brother. Second, is 
this form of lifestyle only for apostles and missionaries seeking to win people for Christ. Paul, as an apostle, states, Woe to him if he himself doesn't preach. But as to this biblical accommodation, i.e., I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, is this behavior only for apostles? Or should we just live our lives and not seek to accommodate ourselves to win others? Just leave it for missionaries. Well, the, if we go on to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, this is what Paul says to the church at Corinth. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. However, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. From this passage, the answer is clear. No. A resounding no. This behavior of not giving offense to others in order to be attractive to win others to Christ is not just for apostles or missionaries, but for us all. Paul is imitating Christ here. He wants the church of Corinth to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And this piece of scripture, like all parts, are written for us and for our benefit. We too are to imitate Christ. For he states, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Oh, thank God for Paul, who gives us this great example in soul winning, in living our lives in view of others for the sake of gospel proclamation. Now that I've got these two objections out of the way, I want to focus on the, the evangelistic help for us of not giving unnecessary offense and making one attractive to others in order to witness them. If we take verse 20, go back to the thanks, where Paul states to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. One may ask, Paul, you are already a Jew. Why are you saying this? But a careful look into the life of Paul is that he allowed himself and others to be under the ceremonial rites that the Jews did by custom and by religion so that... Hold on, I missed the thing. Though, yes, though that he knew these rites had been done away in Christ, but in order not to be a barrier to those Jews, he himself would do these ceremonial rites. Next one. So Paul knows that certain ceremonial rites, they're done away with, but he will do them in order to connect. And this is the verse. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. They said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them 
our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul did this act as not to be an offense to the Jews, his fellow Jewish people, so that when he shares with them, he will not be an affront to them. He says it for the sake, or does it for the sake of the gospel. See what great lengths Paul goes to identify with his own people and others, to the Jew, to the Gentile, to the weak. This implies that Paul understood, cared for, spent time with, learnt about these groups. Similarly, when we read where he says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law, Paul equally here is likely not to perform the ceremonial laws that are necessary. As these would be a barrier for him to relate to the Gentiles, those not having the law. Perhaps Paul sticking to Jewish rigid dietary rules would prevent him from sitting down to those who he's ministering to, he's sharing fellowship, eating with. When Paul uses the phrase, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the weak I became weak, in modern terms, he's basically saying, I'm coming alongside these people. I'm empathizing with these people. I'm relating. This is what I mean when I state accommodating one's self to others. Could we say this? To the Muslim, I related like a Muslim. Or is it to the Muslim, I became myself, and they can take it or leave it. I care not. If so, we need to repent and ask God for a consuming love for our neighbors who are outside our culture, creed, race, and more importantly, outside the kingdom of God. This is not a rejection of our culture, but an embracing of Christ's culture, so to speak, that has a consuming desire to reach all cultures for the salvation of our Lord, or for the glory of our Lord, sorry. However, I'm sure this is not the case with many of us here. Because it is likely we've been showing this accommodation principle in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood, within here, the church, by relating, coming alongside, or empathizing with different people groups inside our church, which will prove a good foundation to empathize and relate with those outside the church. Our behavior in church goes with us outside for the gospel's sake. Many of us are the Bible's people are reading. The sermons that they are hearing are coming from our lifestyle and our behavior. What is it we are preaching? Many of our non-Christian friends are not going to take time and read the Bible, but they will be studying you, studying me, studying us, waiting. Perhaps saying, call yourself a Christian, or maybe she's called for a Christian. 
Or perhaps they're honest. An aside, I just want to give a, a brief testimony. I, uh, when I first got saved, I, um, uh, I, I used to run a um, mobile cleaning uh, company. And um, one of the big top man, he, he, he had a big car, big business. And one of the things he, he said to me, there's something strange about you. This is what he says is true. I can't say this test me now, I don't think. He said, um, there's something different about you. There's something strange. You don't swear. And bang, that was a chance for me to share the gospel. As we've been doing this relating, we have laid the best foundation for those around us to listen to the message. You have given your family time to know the culture you have been raised in. You have wished your work colleague well at their religious festivals. You have given them a kosher cake for their birthday. You have learnt to greet them in their mother tongue. You have understood the mind of your atheist neighbor. You have never eaten beef before your Hindu neighbor. Then you have laid a platform to share the gospel message. I don't Well, Brother Andrew Carnegie, I always remember something that he said. <laughs> um, I, might not have, I might get it wrong. But we, out on the streets, um, he met a number of, um, I think, previous work colleagues. And he's sharing with them about, you know, come to church and um, the gospel. And I remember him ref- uh, reflecting and saying, you know, I always thank God that I never allowed my witness at work, to be a hindrance to the gospel. Perhaps he was never aloof, nor cold, nor nor condescending, but attractive in his witness. Here a quote attributed to, to Francis Assisi might be appropriate, where he says, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Remember, our actions and behavior often speak louder than our words. As I came to faith as a young man, I remember there being a Christian I knew when I was growing up. And he had so related to me, even when I was a non-Christian, that he made the faith even more attractive as he was friendly and understanding as I was a teenager. Now, if I went to Mile End and was doing ministry amongst Muslims, do I state to my wife, look, we're in the UK. We can walk how we, we want to walk. You walk in front of me. Now, whether my wife walks in front or beside or behind makes no real difference. But to certain Muslims, it does. And especially the ones I'm seeking to reach and to share the gospel with. Attempting to convert someone because you believe in something is no real big deal. If you believe in something, if an atheist believes that there's no God, then I feel that he should be able to try and convert others. However, to a Hindu this is likely to be offensive. Eating with unwashed hands, not really a big deal, but for some cultures, it is. Looking at cultures and ensuring we are not appearing as an offense as far as is possible, this breeds a love and concern for others. Ultimately, if we are rooted in Christ's will, we will be concerned for others. This will develop into ensuring our message, hopefully, is more winsome, more attractive, and is not plagued with Christianese language or Christian ignorance or Christian condescension. What I basically mean is we seek to know, relate, and come alongside people so that our message will resonate and connect more with those around us. This is what Paul is doing, but he says it differently. 
As we are, so we will speak. I remember my sending church when joining the mission, my Anglican vicar asking me what my technique was in evangelism. At the time, I said, I don't really have a technique. I rely on Jesus' words that the Spirit will help his disciples when in need. And the fact that I learned so much gospel tracts in my mind that I had a framework for getting over the gospel. However, now, one technique I would say is, which relates to our principle of accommodating or connecting, is that I wish to connect the message I give to that person. And I'm giving an example. This is how I would say, minister, I'm going to be open and honest. Take the word Allah. Normally, I would not use this term whilst witnessing with a group of Christians amongst Muslims, per se, lest they, I'm talking Christians, the ones who are with me, may think I'm using that word in the wrong context. By thinking I'm making the God of the Bible the exact identity of the God of the Quran. The God of the Quran rejects the Son. Allah rejects the Son. However, the God of the Bible has a Son. So I don't want to confuse my Christian brothers and sisters. However, if I were with a Muslim, alone and witness to him, I use the word Allah because he's used to that. That's his custom. In knowing, for the Muslim knows, that there's the one true God. And this I do to make dialogue with the Muslim. I would be also stating that Jesus is Allah and that Allah is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I speak this because I want to connect. And I'm using the cultural term as Christian Arabs use for God. They use the word Allah. Allah can be a generic term for God. Just as the Hebrew word Elohim translates as God in English, so in this sense, Allah translates as God in Arabic. As I repeat, I do this to connect and relate. I remember at Leicester Square Outreach, I did some time ago, I used this principle with a group of Muslims and at the end of the conversation, they said to me, what do we do to be saved? To come alongside Muslims, I greet them with the Arabic greeting, "Assalam alaikum, to build bridges and walls. Whether I greet in Arabic or English, I am free to do. But out of love and the gospel's sake, I will greet in Arabic. Whether I pray silently or publicly, and make dawah, as they say, with hands up, is my choice. But I pray publicly and dawahly because it, make dawah, sorry, because it connects. I have a concern for Muslims. I have a concern for their salvation. I love them. Do you believe in Allah? A Muslim may ask me. Indeed. I believe in the one true God who existed before Islam existed. Do you know anything about him? What I'm saying is that their God, Allah, the one true God they believed in, came in AD 600 
However, the God existed before AD 600. The Quran was never there. There was no Muhammad. I'm taking them back to that place. That place. No, you want the Quran? No, no, no. The Quran wasn't there. It wasn't there. It's there. And it's our books. Or should I say, when he says, um, do you believe in Allah? No. And him just going away. And no opportunity to share with him. I'll leave you to decide. The picture. At the beginning, I spoke about the boys in the cave. And I'm not sure if you uh, were aware that there was an enormous combined effort made towards getting these boys out of the cave. The divers were practicing having a load strapped to them in order to have one of the Thai boys strapped to them later. They had teams trying to pump out water and they had made lots of contingency plans as much resources was thrown into uh, getting them boys out of that cave. Likewise, we see Paul also making a great effort to win those from other walks in life, which would have taken lots of years of heartfelt praying, of many gospel preaching, strenuous effort, connecting. If we are to relate and lay a foundation for our gospel message in this age, within our community, then we as a church need to embrace this principle as well as mobilize those who are looking to work within God's rescue plan. The evangelists or the missionaries within Ecclesia. If a great effort was made to save boys physically, how much more effort is needed to save from spiritual death? So may I encourage us here to have a heart for evangelism. Come alongside those who have a heart for evangelism. Invest in them. Find out more about the mission, www.lcm.org.uk, full of evangelists. Give generously to the evangelistic work around Ecclesia. Ecclesia have a website regards sharing the faith at ecclesia.sermon.net. You have a talk called Evangelism, Our Glorious Privilege. And there's also one for reaching different worldviews called Believe Your Bible, a presuppositional defense of the faith. Get alongside Jason and Tayo with their Operation Forgiveness. Pray for doors to open for them. Come alongside Marina, who has her summer schools, who's seeking to reach the youth. Pray for our TLG kids that Christ would impact their lives. Volunteer even. Sign up to share your testimony or give a brief talk on Tuesday nights for our food service. May I say that this is a wonderful opportunity for anyone here for 10 or 15 minutes to share maybe a song, a prayer, a testimony, a scripture verse to those outside within the church. You have an audience sitting down, and as long as you're brief, hopefully they'll listen. Come out with us on Saturday in the market, or on Fridays you can join me doing door-to-door. Continue to relate to your work colleagues, understand them, understand your family, so that when you share the gospel, you personally won't be putting them off. Get behind those joining the mission this year who are in this place. You will know them soon. Seek to relate to those outside the Christian fold so that you may share your faith with them. For in that cave, spiritually seeking, is not just one race 
of Thai boys. But all races. And we need to reach out and save as many as possible. Since we don't know who are the elect or chosen of God. Unless God gives a special revelation. He hasn't given it to me. Has he given it to anyone here? Has he informed has he informed you that your Indian teacher is not of the elect that you shouldn't share with them the gospel? Has he told you all Chinese people are accursed and outside Christ for all eternity that you never think to get close to them to share the faith with them? We won't stop going on about it, training in it, doing it, sharpening ourselves in it, praying over it until the Lord calls time. And the last one possible can come out of that spiritual cave. And by God's grace, we will, as we seek to accommodate ourselves to those around us, as far as the gospel allows us, so as not to be an obstacle, but rather an attraction to share the gospel. Father, I pray that, Lord, that you'll help us to understand that we also... Uh, was in that spiritual cave. We also, Lord, was surrounded by darkness. That sin, Lord, has entangled us, had made us outside your kingdom. That Adam, Lord, through Adam, all have sinned that we've all fallen short, Lord. Our great rescuer came down, came into that cave, came through all those crevices, all through the waters. And Lord, as I didn't share about the story about the boys, one diver gave his life, lost his life, for the sake of saving them boys. And you, Lord, gave your life for us so that we may have life. Oh, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be truly grateful and out of our gratitude, Lord, have a love for those outside, those outside our sphere, those who are not like us, those whom we never really come into contact. Give an, us an all-consuming love like Paul, as we saw, who, Lord, though he was free, Lord, he made himself a slave to all, so that, Lord, many might be saved. Lord, I really pray that you help us to grasp this and that, Lord, that we would always be truly grateful, Lord, that you yourself came down into that cave and brought us up and you're bringing us up ever higher, ever outward into your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.